Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about compost. Hi there. Welcome to episode number 11 of the Community Composting Podcast. I have Daniel Brown with Rust Bell Riders, the infamous community composters of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, Daniel Brown, welcome to the show. I know um, that Rust Bell Riders has been at it for six or seven years now and it's you and you have a couple uh partners who kind of um are at the helm of the the organization but yeah just tell me a little bit about your origin story with rust belt riders and how it came to be uh diverting so much food waste yeah so we were started in 2014 um by myself and business partner michael robinson um we started as like a bike-based hauling company um and it really was like an effort to uh bring together um michael and i's sort of like disparate uh interests and passions into a thing that we could do uh to hopefully play a role in improving our local food system um, so both Michael and I grew up working in and out of the food service industry, uh, whether working at like food manufacturing plants as Michael did, uh, bartending, working at restaurants, working for catering companies, um, but then also having or attempting to pursue a more like, you know, uh, typical career path, right? And so uh, Michael's doing lots of community organizing. Um, I was working in community development work. Um, and so it was really um, our like day jobs um, would would be largely a community oriented uh, in trying to do community wealth building, um, community empowerment work uh, to create more democratic uh, institutions. Um, and then on nights and weekends working in this food service industry. Uh, and we saw an opportunity for those two sort of worlds or sectors to merge by um, playing a role that nobody else really was, which was how could we connect the waste or excess resources generated from the consumption and uh, intake of food to support um, more local food production, more local jobs, improve public health. Um, and so really we, pre we presented this opportunity to the restaurant that we were working with uh, at the time. Both of us were working there on, on nights and weekends and we approached the owner and said, hey, um, you're a, you're a proprietor of this really cool farm to table restaurant. Um, would, wouldn't it be neat if we uh, found a way to get those, uh, the table to connect back to the farm. And so, um, so we raised a couple hundred dollars from friends and family. We bought a mountain bike uh, and welded a trailer to the back of it. And literally we're riding around Cleveland, picking up food scraps, 300 pounds at a time taking them to community gardens that we ourselves were running um, or our friends were running and then managing the compost at those sites. Um, so really wanted to just provide people with an alternative to landfills. Um, and 
what started on bikes quickly grew out of bikes into fleet of vehicles and uh and here we are today yeah it sounds like um that is really uh crazy that you guys were doing that on on bicycles and i know there's some micro haulers around such as in new york city and dc that operate by bike um but did you see um like what did you see other commercial clients and restaurants start to take interest in what you were doing and then they were willing to pay uh pay for your services and now if you go to the rust belt riders website you look at the partners you guys are servicing i mean you're talking uh pretty big corporations and restaurants um it seems like any any food service uh, anybody who's anybody in Cleveland should be recycling their food scraps with Rust Belt Riders. Yeah, so we, we I think, initially thought that we were going to be this sort of niche um, hobby. Like, it wasn't even a business when we got started, right? I think that it was just this um, this thing that we wanted to do to have an excuse to meet some of the people running farms and gardens in Cleveland. Um, and it was a way to continue to network with our friends who were also running cafes and breweries and restaurants. And so when we first got started, yeah, it was, um, it was really focused on sort of mom and pop restaurants. Um, and then over time, we were lucky enough to get some press and that got the attention of some larger clients that would have been infeasible to try and service by bike. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was really from that that it, we we realized that there's like a business here. There's an opportunity to not just um, do this as sort of a side hustle kind of thing, but we could actually go through the rigor of figuring out what the market opportunity was, what um, the business model needed to look like to do this um, in place of the jobs that we had and not just on top of the jobs that we had. Um, and admittedly, it took a couple of years to take this from our our inception to like being able to pay rent and feed yourself with it um but yeah today we really say that like anybody uh, any organization where people are eating we can work with you right so whether that's a small office that has maybe five employees and is an architecture firm or a uh, healthcare institution like the cleveland clinic that has tens of thousands of employees and are feeding tens of thousands of people um, yeah, we, we realized that this is a relatively new practice for a lot of people. Um, diverting food waste is not the norm in the Midwest, um, as it is on maybe the West Coast or East Coast, where there might be policy in place. And so I think we really leaned into our experience in the food service industry to understand the pain points of those kinds of operations and devised a service that really met people's needs where they were at. Um, And all the while we were going through these like business incubators and business classes to really figure out like, how does this work? Um, Because uh, both myself and Michael don't have like an, or didn't at the time have an accounting or business or finance class between the two of us. Um, I studied ethics, Michael studied social and political philosophy. And I think that that sort of interdisciplinary background led itself to even dreaming up something like this. Um, and 
from there, we could learn the tools and language of business to better position ourselves to, to serve people in a way that makes sense for our community. Yeah, it's definitely helpful to be flexible uh, running a community composting org. But to speak about the, it sounds like Rust Belt Riders, you saw your commercial side of the business really take off and that maybe led, is what led to uh, residential as well as now you, you guys have a, um, you're selling soil amendment. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, of those food service businesses, what were their pain points and how did you optimize your commercial proposals and yeah. quotes. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that um, we we first and foremost always are a, a mission and values driven company, right? And so I think that we try and um, talk about the importance um, that food waste has on um, the planet, um, but also the opportunity that these kinds of jobs can create for. Uh, prosperity and wealth building in a community like Cleveland, um, where you know the average household wage is is abysmal and medium pay is abysmal, um, and so we really wanted to create a place of work that um, created dignified jobs. Um, and I think that the the way that we presented packaging this is like we've got three really clear value propositions to all of our clients. Um, our service is going to be exceptionally clean. Uh, it's going to be timely and predictable, uh, and it's going to be community benefiting. And so um, those different data points, I think, speak to different audiences. And the reason one client to the next uses our service uh, differs on a case-by-case -case basis. So um, for the a case of like a, a cafe, right, um, these are, these are um, usually cafes that um, are fair trade, direct trade, um, coffee roasters that have really strong relationships with where their uh, raw product is coming from. And so to them, it would be a disservice to the labor and people who put time into cultivating that product to only have it go to landfill. And so this is a way of continu continuing those values. Um, so that's on one, one extreme, right? And then on the other, you can go to like a healthcare facility um, and we all know that like your built environment is a very clear predictor of public health. And so um, for healthcare institutions, uh, investing in tools that combat uh, climate change, that improve air quality, that improve uh, the quality of soil that might improve food access, that's an investment in preventative medicine, right? Um, and I think that really understanding um, the ways in which people are coming to this is important. For some people, they want data to say, how many greenhouse gas uh, emissions have we avoided? What is our total tonnage? We have stakeholders and shareholders that are requiring this data of us and we can present that to them. For uh, restaurants, it could just be, we wanna market ourselves as being a green restaurant. You know, We know all of our farmers, we also know where all of our food waste goes. It's a logical continuation. Um, but then I think a through line across all of this is that um, in the hospitality industry in particular, uh, and in office settings as well, um, talent attraction is a huge draw, right? And so the amenities and services that you as a business provide both to your employees and to your, your guests um, is a reflection of the values that you have. And so if I'm a talented uh, person looking for a place of employment, and uh, this place is uh, embodying and taking uh, 
action on a practice that resonates with my core values, um, I'm going to find that to be an appealing place to consider working at. Um, and so sure. I think that yeah, it's multifaceted and there isn't a one single reason why anybody uses our service, I don't think. I think you probably have your sales pitch down pat. <laughs> and I agree that, you know, commercial, the commercial sector is very variable. Uh, yeah. Also with the feedstock, you know, you may get just tons of coffee grounds from your ca cafes and offices, or you may have a, you know, industrial client where it's just tons of produce, yep. but also you need to approach those, um, those clients a little bit differently. Like I like to say, I'm a connoisseur of bins, you know, um, what we use for offices is like a stainless steel step stand because it's a aesthetic um, professional working environment versus, you know, the nasty 64 gallon bin that sits in the back of the grocery store. So, yep. um, yeah, and, and I think, and I think that like, speaking of that, right, like I mentioned that like cleanliness is one of the core tenants that we try and emphasize, right? So that manifests itself in the way that we, conduct our services too, right? So a couple of things that we do is all of our bins are lined uh, with a compostable bag. We're constantly exchanging full bins for clean empty bins. Um, and we weigh everything that we collect and that goes into a dashboard for all of our clients to see in real time the impact that they're making through the use of our services. So if the, if the end of the month comes and they get an invoice uh, and they're like, why are we doing this? We, we point them to that and they see a tangible reminder of the impact that they're making through the use of our services. Um, yeah. I think for, for a lot of people, the prospect of composting implies that it's gonna be dirty, it's gonna be smelly, and you just kind of have to put up with that. Um, and what we try and demonstrate is that like actually using our services makes your overall waste management practice cleaner. Um, and then the other like quip that I always make is like, if you can tell me the last time that your dumpster was power washed with biodegradable soap, we'll pay for your service for like a year, right? <laughs> it just doesn't happen. And so we, we are decidedly cleaner. We have a decidedly better community benefit. Uh, we can attract talent, provide marketing um, and, and really position your, you and your brand uh, as being uh, a step above other competitors. Yeah, I think all that is amazing. Yeah, that's great. Um, liners are definitely important. I, I agree. And, um, you know, the semantics of actually approaching these commercial clients and uh, accounts and generating leads, like, how do you do that? How do you put all this like great language into a document or how do you get interest because you know word of mouth is probably going hard in cleveland like people are aware of you guys by now but you know how do you bring on a skeptical business owner who has food waste still going in their dumpster yeah i mean i think that um the the way that we have always gone about it is that like we, we fundamentally view that, view ourselves as being like an integral part of the community fabric, right? And so, um, so we merely talk about the challenges that food waste presents to our community and to our planet. Um, and we create hopefully ravenous supporters in our clients, right? Um, 
and there is natural churn and migration between one kitchen and the next. And hopefully we uh, are getting to a place where composting should be normalized in most kitchens, right? And so, um, so it's a roundabout way of saying that like, we really don't try and like cold call people or hard pitch people. We, we instead try and hold up our clients as being champions, right? And when you see that like your competitor or somebody who does something very similar to you can do this and has prioritized this investment, um, you can get on board and continue to push this forward or you can be a laggard um, and, and have to play catch up later down the road. Um, but every day that you're part of our service, you're, you're helping move, move us closer towards uh, what a healthy and equitable uh, community should look like. Yeah, and I uh, have also had the same thought is, you know, one day the blanket organics ban is going to come. Like, do you want to be a laggard and just fall behind or do you want to get on board early make sure the transition is smooth? Um, so, yeah, I, I love to hear that. And um, I yeah. guess... Um, you guys are currently using uh, box trucks for commercial collection for the larger one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So we use box trucks and that's again, because we're doing this bin swap method. Um, so, um, you Let know, me just ask you about the bin swap method because I have a couple employees who are grumbling about, you know, how long it's taking and it's the hot Florida sun at the composting site and they got to empty these, rinse them out. Yep. You look at some composters who are using, um, you know, a moisture tight, um, you know, container and they have like a tipper that will just empty the container for their clients. But mm -hmm. on the flip side, the container doesn't get rinsed out. It still might be a little hairy on the inside. Yep. Um, but yeah, what, what are your thoughts about the swap out versus the kind of aggregation system? Yeah, for us, I think it just has to go back to what our value propositions are, right? Um, if we're telling you that our service is going to make your waste management cleaner, it needs to make your waste management cleaner. Um, and that does require additional time uh, on our end, but it also allows us to like be closer to the feedstock, right? So it allows us to identify contamination where it occurs um, and then take corrective measures to mitigate contamination. Um, That's right. I think if like, you're just, if you have a grapple arm and you're just aggregating yeah. it, you're not gonna lift the lid and see the contamination. Right, and I mean, I think there might be a time and place where that makes sense, but for us, it isn't now, right? Um, I think that um, the, the ability to be close again is, is important. Um, but also, um, it allows us to, to really, um, I think, um, make good on that idea that like, this is cleaner, right? Um, and, and I think that we don't necessarily need to, and we don't really want to be mimicking the practices of waste management, right? I think that a big problem, uh, or, or hindrance maybe that I see in a lot of community composters are like, we're like waste management, but for food, right? And that's like not it, right? We're we're really like a uh, marketing tool. We're an environmental program. We are a educational resource because every time we come in and are swapping out bins, that's an opportunity to talk to somebody who works the kitchen line, somebody who's got a question about um, this or that thing. And 
when we can point to contaminants, when, when we can make sure that somebody who's already got a ton of problems and is working a really stressful job doesn't have to open a bin to find um, putrid smells or residue, right? Like we want to make this as easy to use for our clients as possible um, while ensuring that like we leave as few um, potential shortcomings um, to be pointed to, right? And I think that odors um, and pests are uh, the, the plight of a lot of uh, composters nationwide. And we do a lot to try and get out ahead of that. I think that's a valuable lesson. Something as simple as swapping out the bin, it can really lead to those connections with your customers, the staff members. They can lead to lower contamination and overall just staying true to your company's values, yeah. uh, which I think is well said, well said. Uh, we'll see what you say after you bring on that grocery store client, though. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we've start, we, we've been piloting with them for um, a little over a year now. And oh, okay. um, and yeah, I mean, they, they're we, we do have a different climate than you do in Florida. Right. Um, and so half the year we've got like frozen popsicles in cans and the other half of the year we got like it can get uh, really hot in there. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so I think we're, we're, again, it's all contextual, right? I don't think that there's a, a single approach to service that will work nationwide. I think that this, this model works for us where we're at, um, with the clients that we have, right? I think that if a client insisted that like we tip cans, um, maybe we'd explore that, right? Um, so long as they swore to never complain about smell, <laughs> right? And I've uh, heard, um, you know, I think that the waste management's republics might have one thing right on their commercial routes is starting in the wee hours of the morning to avoid traffic. Um, yeah. That seems to be a really big time saver, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, again, I think it goes back to this idea of the kind of place we wanna be, um, right? I mean, I think that um, we have this mantra within our, our organization that like how we do what we do is just as important as what we're doing. Right. And, and by that, I mean, like, it's pretty obvious that like there are environmental and social benefits to combating food waste, but we, you could just as easily, you know, um, run three shifts a day, starting at four in the morning and ending at, you know, three at night, um, pay minimum wage and, have have a be creating a workplace that it doesn't create or provide dignity to the people that are working there uh, doesn't honor them as like the champions and true leaders in this movement that they are um, and so yeah I mean we we really do try and keep um, pretty normal business hours um, you know we we start usually around eight and try and close and have our routes finished by like six most days of the week. Um, we recently have started adding a Saturday shift. Um, but again, we try and keep people um, to a set schedule that works for them and their families. Um, and, you know, uh, and really, you know, if this, if this, be, we don't want to, yeah, we, we, we want people to feel safe, dignified and yeah. avoid injury. Um, I think that's home. something to definitely strive for as, uh, you know, of a community composting organization and 
yeah, I mean, you guys aren't just idealists. You guys are really doing it. So I know Rust Belt Riders, um, if you haven't already, you're kind of going through the process of becoming a cooperative. Yep. Yeah. And so what is that we, like? Yeah. So, no, I mean, I think that, again, that goes back to the how it is uh, that we're doing this work is just as important as what it is that we're doing. So while the company was started by Michael or I, um, you know, however many years ago, um, we, we have always wanted to be creating a place of work that created opportunities uh, for everybody equally um, and also um, shared some of the responsibilities of ownership as well as uh, which comes with both uh, benefits and liabilities, right? Um, and by creating like a democratic workplace, um, no one person's the leader, right? No one person calls the shots. And so, um, and, and I think that it begins to build institutions that can be replicated in other settings, right? And so for us, um, yeah, we've begun the process of transitioning to worker ownership. We just rewrote all of our um, bylaws and uh, internal governance structures. So now, um, uh, by the end of this month, we will have four worker owners, um, two that will be joining Michael and I. Um, we've made it very clear what pathways people need to take to become worker owners. So there's a work a number of hours worked with us um, is one is one threshold. Um, and so anybody who's hired with us has a pathway to become an owner. Um, and when you are an owner um, and uh, God willing, we're profitable. You'll receive dividend payments. Um, you'll help determine the schedule of people, the growth and trajectory of our company, the wages that we pay to people, um, everything, right? Um, and I think that um, it's that those kinds of institutions and that kind of workplace that I think um, we need more of because- um, And I want to so mention that Saro, another yeah. composting organization in Boston, um, is also a cooperative and they're doing uh, a great service for the community, but also um, are successful and they seem to be running a you know, successful business, uh, just like Rust Belt Riders. So yeah, that's, uh, yeah, yeah that's a massive inspiration to us as well. I mean, yeah, in addition to them, like pedal people out of uh, Northampton, Massachusetts was actually one of our initial inspirations. They do uh, organics and recycling service all on bikes and they're all, uh, it's an employee owned uh, organization as well. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting in the community composting space, there's um, a growing interest in this as a business model, because again, I think when, you, when we are trying to position ourselves as being different than waste management, um, we, we, I think all of us are like, triple bottom line oriented, right? Like, what are we doing for people, the planet and, and prosperity and worker cooperatives center um, people uh, and prosperity quite, quite uh, handily. And then the work that we're doing inherently has a benefit to the planet as well. Um, and so I think for this work, for this industry, um, worker cooperatives tend to make a lot of sense in, in my opinion. Yeah. And I mean, I'm a little bit in of a different position than you. It's uh, my, we've been at it for about a year and a half. Of course, I still uh, wanted to start paying my drivers like 15 an hour. And yep. 
that's a contentious issue here in Florida. Right now, the minimum wage is like insanely low, maybe eight, but they just passed a law to get it up to 15 in the next five years. But it is a, a little more challenging when you're not an established business with a, a long list of clients. So that, you know, is a, another great reason um, to, you know, operate a cooperative like a republic because you, you know, there's high risk, but a high reward and, and it's shared very unilaterally through the organization. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like I, I, I commend you for, for having those thoughts. Right. And I think that like, for us, we wouldn't have got here if we didn't have this as an intention early on. Right. I mean, for the first couple of years, like uh, we didn't get paid at all. Um, for the first couple of employees, we weren't paying the wages that we're paying today. We weren't providing benefits, right? But like, you don't ever get to a place where you're going to one day wake up and decide you want to be a worker cooperative, right? Um, oftentimes, um, you could have taken on investment or made different like uh, decisions that maybe uh, could prevent that from happening in the first place. And so um, we've always been really mindful of, of our sources of capital making sure that the people that um, are working with us and are rooting for us understand and are aligned with our vision around workplace democracy um, so that everybody's expectations are, are aligned. Um, uh, because again, I think that um, what we're doing is, is cool and there's a big uh, opportunity potentially out there around what we're doing. But if the way that we're doing it is extractive and is uh, modeling um, some of the worst actors in our economy, then I don't think we're getting it, making any progress in in this idea of like a just transition of getting to a place where we can have robust community wealth building and change the lived conditions and experiences of the communities that we're aiming to serve. Great. Well, yeah, I mean, to kind of uh, shift gears a little bit, I, you know, want to know what Rust Belt Riders' goals are for the long term, but then I want to talk about your uh, new composting site and the, the soil amendment that you guys are now selling, which I love the names for your different products. Uh, we'll talk about that later, but yeah, what are the long-term goals? Yeah, um, I mean, I think long-term goals, um, I think again, like for, for me and a lot of people that I work with here at Rust Belt, um, uh, are, are centered around community wealth building and, and co-ops. And so um, you're obviously part of the Community Composting Coalition. There are, you know, dozens and dozens of other organizations that are. Um, I think that like one idea that we've been kicking around is like, can we start a federation of community composting co-ops, right? Um, where we can, as a collective, buy toters, uh, where we as a collective could share an auto insurance policy and buy in bulk and share some of the overhead that we're all like recreating each and every time we start a new organization. Um, you know, we could share bylaws, we can share employee handbooks, we can share payroll services, healthcare insurance policies. All of that would lower the overall overhead for the network. Um, but also make us much more robust in going after just random example, right? If every Chipotle in the country wanted to compost, we could bid on it, 
right? Like as a, as a federation of community composters and that, that wealth stays in our communities because of how we're set up. Um, and I, and love, I, I, feel, I, I love that idea from like a national waste industry perspective. Like yeah. we, as a unit, we would have, you know, just as much, uh, just a, a seat at the table with the other huge waste management companies. Exactly. And um, I mean, organics is being such a large part of the material going to the landfill, like it would only have more of a significant impact. So totally. Yeah. And I mean, I think that like, again, going back to this idea that like, this really shouldn't be a race to the bottom. This shouldn't be a like, let's do what waste management is doing, but for food waste, right? Um, so a friend far smarter than me once said that like, in order to compete with economies of scale, you need economies of collaboration, right? So the degree to which we can be collaborative with other community composters to share some of the hurdles that we've overcome and to learn from some of the hurdles that they've overcome, we as a collective, become much more resilient uh, and able to compete with these really entrenched industries that um, are frankly like hurting our, our communities and hurting our planet. Um, because we can we can learn from one another in a way and be nimble and agile um, in a way that I think is super exciting. Um, yeah. And all that to say, right, like success for us doesn't look like being in 15 cities or 10 states, right? there are competent community composters who are just crushing it in communities all over the country that just need advice here or there um, and are doing things that we can learn from and hopefully we can impart some knowledge too. And I think that the ways in which we can create more, a more robust network where our, our, we have a shared interest and our, our success is tied up in one another um, gets, gets us all really uh, pumped up and excited. Wow. Yeah. You heard it. You heard it here first on the community composting podcast. I would love to have another, um, I, I'm, I know the conference for the coalition was going to be in Cleveland last yeah. year, but it got canceled, but I would yeah, love to see if we can do that again and, you know, maybe bring this discussion to the forefront. Yeah. Um, we're, we're chomping at the bit to get the conversation going. And I think that, um, yeah, we're really excited for the conference to to come to Cleveland uh, and to start planting those seeds about what that could look like and and where there are opportunities to, you know, begin uh, seeing where where what routes we can lay down to to begin experimenting with it. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how the economies of scale, the big the big waste haulers react to something like that if they you know, feel it's a threat to their bottom line or not. But yeah. Uh, yeah, only time will tell. As you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile micro bin designed and made easy by O2 Compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. With 32 plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert 
in the field of ASP composting. I encourage you to set up a free half an hour consultation with Peter Moon by going to his website www.o2compost.com. That's the letter O, the number 2, compost.com. If you mentioned that you heard about O2 Compost on this podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the Microbin Compost Training Program. So I want to mention you guys recently moved into um, how many acre composting site there in Cleveland? Uh, It's like, it's about two. Uh, So um, in many ways, it's enormous for where we came from. And in other ways um, is, you know, uh, we're, we're learning a lot about the process. And, and how, uh, how much are you able to process? Like how, um, what was the increase you saw when you move in, moved into the new complex? Yeah, so so what ended up happening was we, so we uh, worked really closely with the Ohio EPA for a number of years. Um, because composting is regulated by the Ohio EPA. Um, and so on any one parcel, you were only ever able allowed to compost up to 300 square feet. Um, we changed that rule by chirping in the right people's ears uh, to get up to 500 square feet. So um, for the last like two or three years, we were really testing the limits of what you were able to compost on 500 square feet. Um, we were only ever able to process some percentage of the material that we were collecting. And then we partnered with other licensed facilities to be composting the rest of the material that we um, hauled. Pretty typical of a lot of community composting organizations. Um, When we moved to this new site, our goal was we want to compost everything that we pick up and we're still doing that successfully. That's um, awesome. And, and has that um, been a cost saving for you, not paying tipping fees or anything? So, yeah. So, so that was really the premise, right? Is like we could take on a lease at a new site, avoid tipping fees, or basically whatever we were paying in tipping fees would now be paid for in the lease. But what, what, what it created was the opportunity to have a bunch of soil um, that we were previously paying other people to process make and then sell themselves. Now we are getting to like what we talk about is like cyclical integration, right? So people always talk about vertical integration. We're all about circles and loops. Um, So when we pick up food waste, we get paid a little bit of money to handle and be stewards of that material. We then composted ourselves and then now we sell it um, under the brand Tilth Soil. Um, And because we, again, aren't trying to compete with major landscapers or major big composters well the the core product we make is obviously compost we've really focused on developing a line of soil blends for more specific applications because um it allows our our finite product to go to go further but also allows us to really differentiate ourselves in the marketplace um, so we have like a seed starting mix. We have a uh, raised yeah, bed. And can you mention their names? Like I think they're ingenious. <laughs> yeah. How you name? Yeah. So so Tilth is the brand, and then Tilth has a couple of products. And so our seed starting mix is called Sprout. Um, our raised bed fill mix is called Grow. We've got a house plant mix called House. Um, 
our uh, simple i love it (laughs) yeah so yeah i mean it was a fun little project to do to build a new brand and build a new website and come up with product names um we haven't ever had the opportunity to do that with our services um and so it's cool to begin um rust belt riders provide services tilt soil provides products right um and the two brands can sort of complement one another when that's useful or live independent of one another when it's more practical so for example we've sold we've been fortunate enough to sell some of our soil to farms in pennsylvania and michigan and they might not have a clue who rust belt riders is and that's fine um, but they know what tilt soil is um, and so it allows us to have a presence further out than we could reasonably service using our like limited service area of hauling but our products can travel right um, and i think that's that's really where we see this going is that um, we're never going to stop picking up food scraps, um, but we aren't going to really change our service area all that dramatically anytime soon. But what we want to begin doing is creating amazing, really high quality living soils from the food scraps that we're composting ourselves and making that available to our regions, farmers, home gardeners, so that they can take on the daunting task of trying to grow more food for themselves. And just to mention why I said those names are so, um, you know, ingenious is because it's very simple. There's, I feel like there's quite a disconnect between people and really understanding the different blends of soil amendment, like what it really means to have a high carbon, high nitrogen, um, you know, soil amendment. So you guys just do most of the work uh just by naming it um you know grow or sprout or house um so it's pretty obvious if you're looking to buy soil to pot your plants you know what brand you're gonna go with so yeah And and i think that was part of the challenge too is like early on we were selling compost right but i think that as magical and as amazing as compost is the average home gardener um, and even average farmer um, doesn't quite know how to use compost, right? Often you can, a, an improper application of compost can lead to nitrogen burn. And then you're like, why did I buy this compost? Um, uh, and so, you know, for a farmer, uh, if they're starting from seed, you need a seed starting mix, right? If you're a home gardener and you've got a raised bed fill, you don't want to fill that raised bed with compost. That could be actually deleterious to like the quality of plants that you're trying to grow. And so we really want to like people who are either a professional farmer and have been for longer than we've been alive, as we've been told many times, um, or have never like grown a plant in your life that like you're going to get something that's super high quality and is going to give you like the confidence to try this thing um, that we think more and more people should be doing. And what other material do you use with the food waste feedstock? Yeah, so so um, food waste is obviously our source of nitrogen. Um, and then for carbon, we work with some local municipalities to get leaves and wood, wood chips, um, which we're able to get um, pretty consistently and regularly. Um, that's the basis for our compost. Um, we, we meet or exceed all national organic program standards for the monitoring of our composts. Um, and then from that, we screen it to seven eighths inch, um, which then is the basis for all of the blends that we make. So um, our houseplant mix, for example, 
has like wood fiber and perlite and bone meal and, and blood meal and gypsum. Um, we jack up the perlite because if you've got houseplants, you'll know that like overwatering them is a really big common issue. So the perlite helps with drainage. For uh, our raised bed fill mix, we include things like uh, sharp sand, uh, again, wood fiber, coconut coir, uh, peat moss to provide the soil with structure and then trace minerals to adjust for pH and make sure that you've got ample drainage. And then sprout has, again, trace minerals, which help with root development and root structure. So you get improved germination rates. And so um, we're really fortunate. We've got uh, one of my colleagues, Nathan Rutz, is just like, um, a savant when it comes to his understanding of soil and soil microbiology. We're constantly tweaking the blends and formulations of the products that we're, we're making um, and continually trying to shrink our, our ingredient supply chain so that we're sourcing from as local um, suppliers as possible. So like the sand that we get is mined not too far away from us. The perlite that we get is an hour away. We switched from coconut coir, which came from Indonesia, to wood uh, pulp or wood fiber from North Carolina. And so, again, I think the way that we win and the way that we develop soils that are appropriate for our region uh, is by supporting businesses from our region and using ingredients that are approximate to where we are. Okay, yeah. And you guys are big soil nerds. I've seen you um, looking under the microscope at the biology of your yeah. soil products. Uh, what are the things that um, you said, Nathan, what are the things he looks for and how does he tell if um, a product has the right microbes for the specific use? Yeah, so so we we really want to emphasize that like the products we're making are living soils, right? And so um, so we do a number of quality assurance measures to make sure that the product that we're shipping out is going to be uh, performed the way we want it to. So we we test for pH, um, electroconductivity. Uh, we also then do microscope or biological uh, assessments of what's in it. We're looking for diversity. So we look for protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods, uh, fungal to bacteria ratios. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's a whole rubric that Nathan has um, uh, inserted into our operation after having learned from people like Dr. Elaine Ingham um, about what the soil food web is and how it functions. But then the like last and most basic thing that we do for each and every batch of soil that we make is we ask a plant, how did we do, right? So we, we literally just plant seed, like use our soil and plant seeds in them. And um, we, we're always running those against competitors in, in our market to say, is our product just as good, if not better than this product? Um, and if we tweaked the amount of uh, blood meal or kelp meal, did it improve it or hurt it, right? And so we're continually tweaking the, the formulation to optimize for performance uh, and outcome uh, while, not, while not sacrificing ideally the either cost or where we're getting our ingredients from. Wow, yeah, that's impressive. Um, uh, back to your composting site, um, you guys are using um, to aerate, it's aer aerated Winrow style is that is that right? You guys are yeah. Using so, like so we have we have we use 
we the formation of our piles is in windrows um, and then we have a windrow turner that we use to aerate the piles um, we're not doing any um, static aeration there's no like added ventilation or uh, air that we're piping in um, but we do do daily uh, moisture and temperature readings of all of our piles um, and that informs um, if and when we're turning a pile um, the as summer um, comes upon us we're in the midst of spring it's been rainy so we've been fortunate but uh, a cool thing that we're doing is we're adding like a uh, a water atomizer so it just will mist uh, the piles as we're turning it um, so we maintain proper moisture levels even if it's not raining or if it's been exceedingly can dry. I ask why you're not doing ASP which a lot of composters recommend because it's a lower operations cost you're not turning it as frequently uh, why do you go with windrow yeah so we go with windrow for a number of reasons first and foremost is that we want our compost to be in touch with the ground itself um, the like native soil that's there will help introduce biology to the pile um, in a way that sometimes asps uh, take place on concrete pads um, we're we're trying to repair land um, and not like terraform something such that this site can only ever be used for compost long into the future. Um, and so so that's reason number one. Reason number two is that I think we the research that Nathan's done uh, has shown that like ASP um, does it. It may speed up the decomposition process, but part of what you are looking for is um, for fungi and, uh, and the microbiology to begin breaking down the lignin in your um, in your wood chips, which uh, will create for a less woody uh, finished product. And so you kind of need the the fungi and biology to like do their thing um, rather than like speeding up the process. Um, and so one so. I think that being said, I think that we still have like a pretty quick throughput um, from from food scrap in to um, screened compost is about 60 days. Um, and I think that a lot of the th ways that we think about accelerating the decomposition is actually by um, sort of culturing and using the biology that we've created through finished compost um, in the creation of new compost piles. So. Something we do is like, we call it like back slopping. So your finished compost will be teeming with biology and fungi. Um, so we're always adding that to the beginning of the next pile. And we think that that kind of efficiency might offset or make the, the need for aerated static piles moot. Um, plus it's less infrastructure. So um, makes, makes us a little bit more nimble. Gotcha. And yeah, that does make sense. If you think about a municipal composting site in the United States, which more common than not uses windrow turning of residential yard debris and the very woody Lingden filled material. I always wondered how does, uh, you know, that feedstock being mostly browns, how yeah. does it break down at all? But yeah, the fungus is the, the key right there. Yep. And, you know, allowing it to take, you know, from three months to six months, you know, is a little like that gives me a little pause because I, yeah. you know, I want to get the material off the side as quick as I get it in. But 
Yeah, no, I mean, throughput is, throughput is a really important measure um, because as you know, like the, the volume in never slows down. In fact, it usually gets increases if things are going well. Um, so you need to, to go out too. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a balance, it's a balancing act, but I think that, um, our preference really would be to like, let our compost sit longer. Um, if we had the luxury of doing that rather than rushing it through. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that we, um, as Nathan will tell you, like, we, we want to like, eventually like try all these different methods. I mean, we, we did one method a few years ago where we literally just put compost in a form with pipes in it. We weren't injecting any air, but at no point was any one part of the compost pile more than uh, 12 inches away from air. Um, and you just let it sit and there's, it's a no turn process. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're constantly experimenting with different approaches. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think that, um, ASP is, is one that, um, we haven't really like actively done. Um, but I'm sure Nathan's got a far better rationale than whatever I've attempted. Yeah. To and I've heard of, you know, kind of a combination between the two, like ASP Winrow. Yep. Um, yeah, I think, I think that could definitely work. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really impressed by you guys getting certi certified by, you know, U.S. Composting Council, your end products are STA certified. Is that right? Or they're, they're not actually yet. Um, we're, we're, our products are all, uh, approved for organic use in, uh, by a number of different state and regional certifiers. Um, and then we're considering pursuing uh, OMRI uh, certification, but it's a little bit costly, uh, so we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that we, we, we're really trying to just make it uh, as clear to people that we're doing the right thing the right way, and um, we don't want to give anybody any pause around whether or not they should use our product. Yeah, well... You have a lot of great lessons um, that I hope other aspiring community composters extract from this discussion. And I, you know, I thank you for coming on the, the podcast. Do you have any, you know, last things that you've learned in your seven years of running Rust Belt Riders? Oh, man. Um, I mean, first of all, it's been an awesome chatting with you. Um, yeah, I mean, I... My invitation to anybody listening is like, reach out. We're happy to talk. Um, in terms of like life lessons, um, just be kind to yourself. There's lots of high highs and lots of low lows and very few days in between. Um, uh, and when you need to pick me up, call another community composter because they can like resonate with what you're going through. Um, this is really hard work and we're, we're, we're building this industry together. Um, and I think that the degree to which we can think about this as a, as a collective movement that's happening autonomously in other cities across the, the country is something that gives me a lot of like hope and inspiration to know that like um, I can call up, uh, you know, any number of composters and just like riff with them. Um, and increasingly like calling, you know, what people I would have thought were like really, really big composters and asking for their advice too. So like, I just had a call with uh, 
guys from Dirt Huggers out out west, and they're they're doing awesome work too, right? Uh, but like, yeah. I think the the degree to which we can be collaborative and uh, and think through these challenges with one another will uh, make us more resilient and uh, stronger at the end of the day. Yeah, that's awesome. They're doing amazing thing there in the yeah. Columbia River Gorge. And I'm visiting my hometown of Portland this summer and I plan to go tour. Totally shit. Yeah, so. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you so much, Daniel. This has been a pleasure and a uh, great interview. Lots of tidbits that, you know, I've learned from, so. All right, have a good rest of the day. Appreciate it. Yeah, take it easy. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. If you enjoy the Community Composting Podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation, even if it's 5 to $10 a month. We'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling.